do a little sneak peek into 1 Corinthians 15 today, uh, just because I've sensed that life has been hard for many of us over these past couple of weeks. And then I also realized that we were about to get chopped liver served up to us in the chapter we would be in today, chapter 5, all about the guy who shacked up with his stepmother and Paul's incensed and um, instructs them to do practice church discipline. So I decided that we needed to skip uh, the liver menu for today and shoot right to the ice cream uh, dessert (laughs) in chapter 15. It's a bizarrely wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians. Don't get me wrong, chopped liver is good for us just as church discipline is, without question. It's truly good for the spiritual health of God's people. We're just going to eat it another day. You'll find uh, our text in your bulletin this morning. It's a chunk of 1 Corinthians 15. If we look carefully at this text, I think we'll see that this section of the great resurrection chapter of the New Testament is bookended, we might say, by two things that bore down on the Corinthian Christians and often bear down on us, sometimes with great pressing weight. And Paul then speaks into these two things. First of all, doubt over the truly bizarre claim that Christians will be given immortal bodies when Christ returns. It's not simply that they go to heaven. They're going to be given immortal bodies. That is alluded to at the beginning of this section in verse 35. But then secondly, the thing that bears down so often on us is weariness in the face of the hard work it takes to remain faithful to Christ, to remain faithful to him by living more fully a life of faith, a life of hope, a life of love. And that's alluded to at the close of this section in verse 38. So first, let's look at how Paul addresses the doubt that some of the Corinthians had. And some of you, perhaps this morning, may have similar doubts about whether the promise of a resurrection is a real resurrection. That is, an actual transformation of a believer's body. Some in the congregation in Corinth seemed to doubt that the resurrection of a believer's body was literally a coming event, doubt which apparently led to the outright rejection of that claim. Paul refers to this all the way back at verse 12. You don't have that in front of you, but back at verse 12, it becomes clear that this doubt in Corinth, at least among some of them, was the occasion for Paul to write this very long section of his letter all about resurrection. Verse 12 goes like this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? The apostolic teaching was that Jesus' body was literally raised from death and molecularly transformed so as to become immortal, that is, impervious 
to disease, to decay, to demise of any kind, to death. And so also, then, those who love, trust, and obey Christ are promised that they will inherit exactly the same kind of body. That was the teaching of the apostles as Christ had revealed it to them. So they insisted. But now, in verse 35, Paul answers an argument that was raised against this apostolic teaching. Verse 35. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, it's possible that there are two questions here, and that is that the first one is, well, this sounds crazy, but what are the actual mechanics of this resurrection claim? How does God actually do it? Or maybe the first question is really just a variation on the second. The second is a very specific objection, where people in Corinth, some of them at least are saying, seriously, an immortal body? And just what is an immortal body made of, exactly? Well, they put the question that way to try to expose how preposterous they thought it was. We ask questions too sometimes, don't we? Even those of us who believe what Paul is teaching here, we wonder, we ask our own questions. I do at least, I bet you do, in my coming resurrection body. Am I going to look the same? Am I going to have the same body type? Will I be muscular without having to work out? Will I be an ideal weight and height? How old will I be? And man, if maybe I can choose how old I want to be when I come back in my resurrection body. Well, and what about, will I age? Will I grow? Will my resurrection body change? Will I be able to vanish instantly, as Jesus apparently did, according to the gospel accounts? Most of us can think of situations where that would be enormously useful to (laughs) disappear from other people in an instant. Now you start thinking about these things a little bit, and before long, you feel like you're in the middle of a fairy tale like a Disney adventure. It all just feels fictitious. And so it can be like, Paul, really, do you expect us to believe this literally? And Paul's answer is, yes, I do. So here's what I want to set before you as we trace out how Paul responds to this. When doubt comes to us about the gospel's truly wild claims of the good things to come to believers, then the apostolic logic that is part of our resurrection hope needs to be invoked to speak to that doubt. And so we start reading here at verse 35. I've subtitled this Seeds, Fish, the Moon, and New Bodies. What Paul is going to be doing here is he's arguing for the harmony between the natural and the supernatural world. He insists here that there are credible analogies. 
between the physical and the spiritual world because actually, in the end, there is only one seamless world that God has made. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, the English translation soften it a bit. It's literally, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies. You put body in, bodies in quotes there. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Some of you are familiar with this new film that came out in 2016, just in this year. It's called Risen. It was made by Christians, I believe. Most of it was shot on the island of Malta, apparently. I only saw the last half hour uh, of it or so on Friday night, but I was very impressed with it. The year is 33 AD, and a Roman soldier, Clavius, a tribune, that's one rank in the Roman army above a centurion, he's asked by Pontius Pilate to investigate the disappearance of the body of a Jewish peasant that he has just put to death by crucifixion. And I happened to walk in on the scene where Clavius is with the disciples. He has just walked into the room where Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He had been there at the crucifixion, had seen the soldier put the spear into Jesus' side, knew he was dead, and now he sees him alive. Joseph Fiennes is the actor, and he does a superb job. He sees him alive. And this soldier just is, he's incredulous. And then in a split second, Jesus vanishes. And there was this look of incredulity on Clavius's face when he says, and these words could just as easily be said by a skeptic in the 21st century, I cannot 
reconcile all this with the world I know. It's so very difficult to do in the age of electricity to be thinking about bodies that can vanish in an instant and that would be completely impervious to the bullet wound of a gun, for instance. Let's look at Paul's logic then when he speaks into this skepticism of some of the professing Christians in Corinth. The objection is that really and truly a physical resurrection of bodies is an utterly crazy and preposterous idea. Why? Because there is an absolute disconnect between a body which is mortal and one that is immortal, one that is subject to disease, injury, decay, and death, and one that is not. How does Paul respond to that? Well, with a kind of logic. The logic that Paul invokes is the beautiful harmony, the continuity, the parallel that is there between the physical things we see on the one hand and the spiritual things we are promised. There is, Paul is teaching here, a wonderful similarity between the two. From verse 36, then all the way down to verse 54, Paul is weaving together two distinct themes. And the first one we can put like this. Even in the physical world that we can observe with our eyes, there is this phenomenon of death not being the end, but rather a transformation into something higher, quote-unquote. And what does he use to illustrate that? Seeds. Verse 36. What you sow, and he's talking literally about seeds, does not come to life unless it dies. He means that the acorn dies. And if you've ever seen an acorn that's maybe on the top of, of the ground that has started to grow, you can see the acorn is dying even as the little sprout of the oak tree is growing. The acorn dies in order that it might become an oak. So this is the principle then. It's at work even in the physical world, Paul is arguing. Death is not always an end. Sometimes it is a transformation into a higher thing. That's the first point that Paul makes here, the first point in what we might call his logic. The second point is this. One commentator summarized it this way when he said that the physical world we can observe illustrates that body does not always mean the same thing. There are many kinds of body that a thing or a being can have, and God himself appoints and chooses them for various purposes. So in verse 38 and following, Paul starts with seeds and says, each one has its own body once it sprouts and grows up. An oak tree doesn't look like an asparagus. 
But then Paul moves on to the animal world. He starts with human beings, then he goes to animals and birds and fish. Each has its own, now here Paul doesn't continue to use the word body, but he says each has its own flesh, meaning probably its own bodily life, its own bodily structure. So a bird's flesh, its body, is made to fly. A fish's body is made to swim. And all of this glorious diversity, Paul is saying, God created. Well, then he moves on in verses 40 and 41 to the planets, from the seeds to the animal kingdom, now to the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Each one is created differently. Each one has its own splendor. Probably first and foremost, Paul means here its own brightness. But when he uses glory, I think he uses that on purpose because Paul is going to go on to talk about the glory of resurrection life. And by that, I think he means much more than brightness, though it would also seem to include something of that. Well, if you go down then to verse 42, now Paul brings it home. He's made these analogies, and he's saying spiritual realities are similar. So it is. That is in the same way as it is with seeds, with fish, with the moon. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's different. It is sown in dishonor, and here he says it, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And here's the central thing to grasp regarding the promise of your body becoming a spiritual body. Paul does not mean by the word spiritual here something ethereal, something that cannot be seen, but rather something that is just like Jesus' body was. It was a physical body, but with its mortal condition transformed into an immortal condition by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Christians are promised, a flesh and blood body in the end, but one that is absolutely invincible if you are a believer in Jesus. That's what Jesus has won for you and me, friends. It is what we will get if we remain faithful to him. It's nothing less than the defeat of death itself. And without that hope, what would all our human striving be worth? I forgot to paste it into my sermon here so I can only speak of it in general terms, but this Memorial Day weekend, it is most fitting. It was a poem simply called Resurrection, written by a soldier during World War I. And it's a wonderful poem because in this poem, the soldier says, how would life be worth living if it were not for this? The promise that death itself will be defeated 
No, if there is no hope of a resurrection, God himself is cruel. That young man died in World War I sometime after he wrote that poem. But he knew what he had been promised, to be resurrected one day when Jesus returns. It may well be that this morning you feel like Clavius felt and maybe it just comes in fleeting moments but if you're really honest and you're reading the Gospels and then you're going with your classmates or you're going into the workplace where people live with an utterly different view of the world you maybe feel like Clavius felt when he said I cannot reconcile all this with the world I know. If you find yourself doubting that such things are really truly coming to you because they seem so unscientific, so like a fairy tale, then it probably would be good for you to take some time to ponder the mysterious miracles, if you will of death turning into life in the forest or on a farm. Because, friends, what you are promised here is unbelievably good, unfathomably good, and it goes beyond your wildest dreams. Well, look at the end, if you will. He, Paul starts out with doubt, but then he comes to weariness. And do we not know how weariness comes? It comes to believers in the face of the very hard work that it takes to remain faithful to Christ by focusing on living more fully the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And when weariness comes to us, because it is in fact so difficult to do that, then... Not now the apostolic logic that Paul has laid out, but rather the apostolic encouragement that is part of our resurrection hope. That needs to be invoked in order to fortify us for that weariness. Look at Paul's concluding. It's a most encouraging exhortation out of all of this very carefully constructed argument about the resurrection. In verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, my sisters are included, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That great encouragement is built on, it is rooted in everything that comes before it. Which is what? Well, first of all, it's the the defeat, the literal defeat of death itself and the confidence of being given a never-ending share in that defeat. If you go back to verse 50, Paul says, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood that is mere flesh and blood, untransformed flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then and only then, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here Paul quotes from Hosea in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory, O death. You see, it's a taunt. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing is the promise that we are actually going to be able to join in when Christ returns and God makes a taunting mockery of death itself. But then something else is here as well. Paul alludes to the cross in verses 56 and 57. The good news of grace that God demonstrated at the cross, namely that the innocent one dies, bearing the punishment of the guilty, that is, of us. Paul drops that right into the middle of these things about death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who, and he might have said at the cross, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, there could be no defeat of death at the end if Christ had not defeated sin and evil in the middle at the cross when he came 2,000 years ago. All of this is so keenly in the forefront of Paul's mind, and so he winds up with this, and it's very practical, is it not? This encouraging exhortation here, because he knows that the children of Adam in any age, all of us are prone to weariness, to discouragement, and sometimes prone to give up entirely, thinking we can't possibly go on. But it is possible to go on. And by the strength that God gives to remain steadfast, immovable, even abounding or overflowing in the work of the Lord. All at the same time that... You're sweating from the hard work that you're doing. In a marriage, in any kind of relationship, doesn't matter what it is. Sometimes sweating, sometimes weeping, sometimes even bleeding. The work can be so demanding that it calls for blood, sweat, and tears if we are to remain faithful to Christ. But friends, what God demands, he always always gives us the strength to do. I was struck by Paul's choice of this word immovable in verse 58. It reminded me of lighthouses built so close to the water that they get pounded over and over by the waves. Some lighthouses are up high on a cliff, but some of them are very close to the water. They get pounded again and again and again, like this one 
It's on the coast of Portugal. It's been there since 1886. It has been steadfast and immovable for 130 years against the pounding pressure of the Atlantic Ocean. Aspire to be like that lighthouse. Jesus would urge us through Paul's encouraging exhortation. Aspire to be immovable. Why? Well, you're on your way to becoming immortal. My dear brothers and sisters, Paul meant. And so he would say to you, and because you're on your way, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because the thing that you long for, that place beyond the power of demise and death, that place that you ache for, Christ will soon give it all to you because he so dearly and so deeply loves you. It's yours already. And so everything can be endured. That's the ethic of the New Testament. And God give us the grace to trust it and hang on to be something at least like that lighthouse. It's true enough that it's no longer functioning. 2007, it was replaced by something newer. And you can be thankful that you don't have to withstand the pounding waves in your life for 130 years. And you might think, well, a lighthouse is different. It doesn't have a weak will as I have. And so that's true. It's built out of stone of one kind or another. But friends, the Spirit of God has been poured into your heart if you trust Him and if you love Him. And that's how Christ comes to you, to give you the strength to be and remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Amen. Amen.